Today's readings is from Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, and verses 26 through 27. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoptions. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. Good morning, y'all. Good morning, My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. It's so wonderful to see you, and this is the last time I'll be able to say this for like 11 months. Merry Christmas. If you were able to hang with us last week, you know that it is still Christmas, actually, until tomorrow, which is why we still have our lovely decorations up. Um, it is still the season where we set aside time to know that God is with us. God is among us. God has come. And though we dwell sometimes in our anticipation of God coming or in our loss and separation from God through reflecting on the cross, now is the season that we are called to celebrate that God is with us to most deeply hold that fact that God is here now enfleshed among us. The God who comes has come. Merry Christmas. And also, if you're really tall and want to help us get this tree down, we could use some help. Feel free to grab Carrie or Peggy after services um, who are helping to coordinate the teardown of our Christmas um, items uh, so that we can move on to our next season uh, of Epiphany. But today we also start something new. We start our series Talking with God. We're kicking off the year talking about prayer, and not just any prayer, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, depending on how you know it. Prayer is a really important element of our relationship with God. But as I've been doing ministry, I've noticed that a lot of people don't feel like they're very good at prayer. They're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I can do the reading, I will serve communion, but just don't ever make me pray. Anybody relate? Yeah, hands shooting up. Be clear, Jonah, I am one of those people, never make me pray. Now, the funny thing is that there's actually no wrong way to pray. Emily was right. There's no wrong way to talk with God, just like there's no wrong way to talk to your other loved ones. But we feel this enormous pressure, like we don't know how to pray. And we actually even hear that in the scripture of our text today. Paul, it's really funny because Paul is constantly starting and ending his letters with like, I pray for you. I pray for you constantly. I know you're praying for me. We're praying for each other. I'll pray for you later. I'll pray for you earlier. And yet, in this passage, he's also like, we don't even know how to pray. And so we have this tension of like all of us feeling like we don't actually know how to do this thing that we are called to do constantly. Whether it's out loud or not, we are all called to constant prayer. So we better figure out what prayer exactly is. 
So we're going to spend this time talking about this prayer. And, and the Lord's Prayer in particular is an interesting place to start for me because when I was a kid, the Lord's Prayer bummed me out. I was a little kid growing up um, in like a mainline church. It was a small congregation, a lot of older folks. And my dad was the pastor. So I always sat in the front row with my family, and I'd watch dad preach, and I, got, I would, you know, never pay attention. But during prayer time, we would get to this prayer where everybody, this is like pre-Jonah learning how to read. So like before I knew how to read, I'm sitting in this space, and usually one person would be talking or everybody would be singing, but at some point in the service, everybody would be talking all at once. And I would look back, and I'd look through these pews, and I would see a lot of people sort of mumbling, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And they seemed like zombies to me, and I was so bummed. I was like, this is weird. What is even happening here? So I started to associate the Lord's Prayer with this kind of like rote memorization, zombie-like you know, does that, like, I didn't know what was going on, so I assumed they didn't know what was going on, but everyone's just kind of mumbling their way through it. And when I got to school, and my class started saying, starting the day with the Pledge of Allegiance, and so, they, you know, I don't even remember it anymore. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of, oh, no. And I freaked out, because I was like, why are we praying to this flag? Because it was similarly just like a room full of people who like did not care about what we were saying. And, and we were just sort of mumbling through this thing that like we would say every day over and over again, but like I didn't really know what it meant. Um, so, so that was my first association with these prayers, with these prayers of memorization. And it, for a long time, I was like hardcore in this camp of like, we, I don't do rote prayers. I, I connect with the spirit in the moment. It's only real if it's happening right now. I was, I was really fun to be around. <laughs> and so it took me a long time to find my way back to the, to the beauty and value of liturgy in general, which is the, the word we have often for those kinds of moments where we're all speaking in unison or we're, we're saying something together that we've said over and over and over again. And so I had to reclaim that and find out, like, what is the purpose of that? Because the Pledge of Allegiance really is a bummer, and still as an adult, I am very bummed about it and wish it would go away. But we wouldn't have kids doing the Pledge of Allegiance in schools if it wasn't powerful at some level. The Pledge of Allegiance was introduced um, in the early 20th century to try and gather allegiance among immigrants for the United States of America. And if you say something over and over and over again, it does get written into your spirit. So we actually want to be really careful what are the things that we're saying over and over and over again and who wrote them, and what they mean to us. So to reclaim something like the Lord's Prayer, we have to understand where it comes from. What does it truly mean? What does it mean to us? What does it mean when we say it to ourselves, to God in church? What does it mean if we say it quietly when we're alone and frightened? But also, what does it mean on the pages of Scripture? What did it mean when Jesus said it to the people around him? Why did Jesus teach us to pray in this way? 
And then we have to embrace the value of memorization and repetition. You see, there is something incredibly powerful about it. It's, it's meditative. The Lord's Prayer uses these poetic parallelisms, first this, then the other, these, these pairs that go together. And this repetition is a, a way of making something easier to, to meditate on, this circular motion of first this, then that, now this, then that. And these, these pairs of ideas that go together, they invite us into a rhythm. And meditation in that way over scripture is not unlike meditation over music, which is one, one value I've never questioned, the way that I've connected to God through music. And so in that same way, these repetitions in prayer invite us into a meditation, into the words of scripture that do get written onto our hearts. You see, most of us who have any passing familiarity with the Lord's Prayer know it better than we think we do. The phrases will come back to us. Some of us can probably recite the whole thing from memory on the drop. Others, more like me actually, I, I say this prayer all the time, but it comes to me in bits and pieces and phrases that pop up and remind me that have sense memory of all of the times that I've ever said it out loud and the ways that I felt and where God was in that moment. A colleague of mine, when I posted about this this morning, actually, a colleague of mine commented saying that when he's done hospital visits and he sits with people who are um, often unresponsive in all other ways, on occasion he will say the Lord's Prayer out loud and he'll see the person that he's sitting with who had otherwise been unresponsive starting to mouth the words along. This thing that gets held in our bodies, it is another gift another ritual like communion that we draw on because it is deeper than we know because we have said it over and over again. So again, we better get clear on what it is we are writing into our hearts and what it means. And so when we talk about prayer and what is prayer, we want to dive into this prayer because this is the way that Jesus taught his followers to pray. And we're going to see what this prayer has to say about many other prayers and the ways that we pray and the ways that we talk with God. I want to pause for a moment to, to talk about what prayer is more broadly. There are a thousand ways to think about prayer. I'm going to offer you three this morning. So one is a way of tapping into power. The metaphor um, used in The Greatest Prayer, it's called The Greatest Prayer by John Dominic Crossan. That book is a huge influence for this entire series, and I highly recommend it if you're into historical criticism um, of the Bible and, and learning some of the political context. But in The Greatest Prayer, Crossan uses the metaphor of electricity. That electricity is all around us, especially in our modern age when we've channeled it in these ways, and that we have choices of when and how and whether to tap in. And that once we do, we are connected to something that connects so many things and that allows us to do different things than we could do on our own without it. And so Crossan uses this power metaphor of electricity that prayer is tapping in. At other times, I've talked about it in, in terms of attunement and basically saying, like, are you on, are you, like, are you catching God's energy? Are you seeing what God is up to? The images that I attach with that are 
um, of a field of lightning bugs at dusk. That you see these little, little lights, little glimmers. And if you're not looking for it, sometimes it'll catch your eye. But if you are looking for it, all of a sudden you'll see the field is covered with these lightning bugs. Sometimes I like to think of it as Jesus, Jesus sparkle magic. And prayer is a way of seeking that out, of attuning oneself to it, of, of aligning with God and seeing what is happening in the world. Where is God showing up? How am I in the midst of that? How can I chase after it? So that attunement, that, that seeing of God. And finally, thinking today about prayer as relationship. The reason that we say talking with God instead of talking to God is because, like most relationships, it is richer when there is mutuality. Prayer is about conversation and intimacy. It's about knowing and spending time together. The image that I like to think of with this is of driving long distances with one companion in the car. Now, you can focus on the road ahead, or you can daydream, that person is with you that whole time. God is with you for the length of that journey. But prayer is the intentional choice to turn, to see, to engage, to speak with God. Not to tune God out, but to be especially present to God's gift of presence with you on the journey. Now, who's driving that car? I don't know. Maybe it changes at any given moment. But the goal of prayer, the goal of the relationship to God is to come into power with God, to co-create with God, to somehow drive together. But the only way to consistently drive together is to always be looking, always be aware of God with us. How often do we find ourselves on that long road looking away from God or forgetting altogether that they're there? Prayer is a reminder of a relationship and an invitation to spend time together. And that, again, is why there's no really wrong way to do it. To just acknowledge God, to sit with God, to speak to God, to listen. These are all forms of prayer. And so, what about this prayer? The one that Scripture says Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. I had a professor in seminary who insisted that any time we say the Lord's Prayer, everyone must say it all together in the same way in the exact same words. Now, he had reasons. It is a kind of attunement. There is something special when you have this, this moment where everyone is speaking perfectly in unison. I experience it again most often in music. I remember being at a, a gathering once. It was actually a protest. It was a days-long protest at a military institute, but there were thousands of people there. And so there was a Catholic mass that had about 1,500 people at it. And when we all were singing together in unison, I could not help but weep. 
Because the sound of us all being connected to one another, attuned to one another, saying, singing the same things at that same moment to our beloved God together as one community was breathtaking. The Lord's Prayer is one way of doing that across congregations, across many different iterations of the faith, across time and space, saying this prayer with one voice and one spirit. Now, I believe that we don't actually have to do that in the same exact words, and in fact, we can't. English is not the language in which Jesus taught us to pray. And in fact, we'll learn that uh, our own translations often don't exclusively use English because the original wording of some of these prayers is bilingual, Aramaic and Greek. And so from the beginning, this was a prayer of many cultures, a prayer of many languages, a prayer of many different kinds of expressions for the same thing. And so if you learned, lead us not into temptation, or if you learned this prayer in another language, you do speak it in one spirit as anyone who speaks it in a different language or with a different phrasing. And that's why when we gather here, we say, we have words on the screen. Use the words you know, the words written on your heart, the words you'd like to write further into your heart as we pray together in one spirit. So what makes this prayer so special? As I mentioned, it in its original form is bilingual. It's this boundary-crossing access to God. It's also this interesting cultural mix because Jesus is saying it. But Jesus isn't Christian. Jesus is Jewish. And yet you would expect a Jewish prayer to speak about Torah or the law or the temple, purity. And it doesn't. And so this is a prayer that emerges to shape Christianity and the followers of Jesus out of a Jewish context, but not really having the hallmarks of either. We don't say Christ in the Lord's Prayer. We don't even say Lord in the Lord's Prayer, which I believe is actually a really great thing. And so we have this prayer that actually defies a lot of the cultural markers of the places that it comes from and the places that it's going. Crossan writes that this is a prayer from the heart of Judaism on the lips of Christianity for the conscience of the world. And later, a radical manifesto, a hymn of hope for all of humanity in a language addressed to all the earth. Tell that to my seven-year-old self who just thought there were a bunch of zombies in my church. That's incredibly different than I've ever thought about the Lord's Prayer, hearing it routinely muttered. A radical manifesto, a hymn of hope. Because actually contained within all of this is totally game-changing, social order-flipping language, declarations of a new and different way of being. Now that sounds like the Jesus we talk about here, that's for sure. And so... We have to go into this and understand what did it mean then? Why was it a radical manifesto? How have we forgotten? What do we take for granted now that we say out loud that actually is incredibly disruptive and a promise of hope? So we have to go back to when it was said. The culture in which Jesus was teaching this prayer was a patriarchal culture and a tribal culture. 
And so within this structure, everything fell under the head of household. And the central concept of the Lord's Prayer is actually the idea of all of creation as a well-run, a justly run, a righteously run household with God as head of household. Now, the head of household, if they are to run their household justly and righteously, needs to provide for all. And so, under this idea of God as head of household is the question, does everyone have enough? And when the answer is obviously no, the follow-up is what needs to change? Because this prayer has themes of abundance and provision, but it acknowledges that there are folks without It acknowledges that there is disparity. It it acknowledges trial and evil. And so you see immediately that the way things are is not the way things ought to be. And that the way God set up God's household is not the way the household is being run. That something has intervened. And that all are not receiving the abundance that they are promised. All are not receiving the provision that God, our head of household, wants for us. And that something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. This prayer inherently is a critique of the distribution of wealth, power, and resources. In the theme of justice in our scriptures, you hear uh, three main players at almost every turn. The widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Or sometimes the stranger is translated as the resident alien. Essentially, that last category is somebody who doesn't belong from the tribe in this tribal culture, someone who comes from without. But the orphan is someone who doesn't have a father, a patriarchal figure who can provide. And the widow, similarly, is someone who doesn't have a husband, a patriarchal figure who can provide. The connection here is that the widow, the orphan, and the stranger are all without family, without advocates. And so, as as we may want to critique this patriarchal and tribal society, this prayer is a critique of that. It's a provision towards abundance, but also a critique of the way things are. In patriarchal tribal society, you had to have your people. And if a widow has no husband, and an orphan has no father, and a stranger has no tribe, then they are left on their own, and they fall immediately to the bottom They are the folks without. They are the folks most obviously without because they have structurally been excluded, marginalized, left outside of the household. And so written into this prayer is a critique of the household. Just as the prophets critique it every time they mandate from God that God doesn't actually want our prayers as much as God wants us to care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And so this prayer has that baked right in. This prayer begins with the line, Our Father. Our Father. Everyone who speaks it, Our Father. This universal Father. What does it mean to have a universal Father in a system of patriarchal and tribal authority? It means that all are protected. That all have an advocate. And that advocate is God. In the Gospel of Luke... We talk sometimes about the great reversal. One of the accounts of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke, has this obsession with these phrases like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And we, in our hierarchical 
orientation, are, are so committed to hierarchy, are so, so invested in there being a top and bottom that when we hear the first shall be last and the last shall be first, we just flip it on its head, right? But the way that I think God is actually doing this, when God says the first shall be last and the last shall be first, is to flip it on its side, to level and to equal, because there is no first and is no last when all are made whole and one, when all is truly just. And in this same way, in a patriarchal and tribal culture, when God says, I am your father, all of your fathers, it means an ultimate breaking of that whole system of patriarchy and tribal protection. Because if we all have one father, we all have one tribe. And there is no lower status for orphan or widow or stranger because no one is widowed when all are under the protection of God. No one is a stranger in the tribe of the people and children of God. No one is orphaned when we have a universal parent who adopts us in no matter where we feel we come from and claims us and says, you are a part of this family. No one can ever put you on the outside. The hierarchical structure of this society that Jesus is teaching in has been broken with one phrase, our Father. And yet, we now have struggles with that metaphor for God because we still live in a patriarchal culture and our tribes take different forms. And so now it grates to say our Father for some of us. And that's the thing about metaphors for God. They're never complete. Now, they are, in some way, all we have. We can't talk about God in anything but metaphor because God is other and also bigger and also intimate and also everywhere. So there is nothing that fully captures God, and so we have these pieces, these metaphors. I believe that's the point of Scripture because in addition to metaphor, we have story, we can approximate God. We can describe our relationship to God. And that's what the phrase father does. But what happens when that metaphor becomes harmful? We need new ones. We need to challenge the ones that exist. And that's what they're there for. Anyone who is holding so tightly to a single metaphor for God is going to lose the fullest picture. Now, that doesn't mean that when a metaphor chafes, we throw it away. It means, again, we try and understand what is the point of this metaphor? What is it trying to reach in us? Where has it gone astray? Why does it no longer land? And how can we reclaim it? You see, Jesus could have used different metaphors for God in this prayer. It would have been very common to use the metaphor of king and to emphasize political order or warrior and emphasize power. It came later that we started using the term Lord, which has a ton of really wonky medieval implications. And it's about feudalism and hierarchy. In some ways, that can be a radical metaphor too. Because to say that God is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, is to undermine the lords of this world. But Jesus isn't really going for subversion here in the, in the metaphor of our relationship to God. Jesus is subverting social structure and hierarchy, but I think Jesus is being direct when he calls God Father. But actually, Jesus doesn't call God Father. 
Elsewhere in the scriptures, we have this phrase, Abba ho pater. This is again a mixing. Abba is Aramaic. Ho pater is Greek. And while ho pater means the father, and not just father, the father, it's like big deal, the father. It actually begins not with that powerful the father, the one who comes to disorient our entire social structure, the one who claims you, who will speak for you, who will advocate for you, the one who will make sure you are never cast out. It actually begins with Abba, which is a much more colloquial and intimate term, spoken not in the language of commerce, Greek, but in the language of the home, Aramaic. Abba means daddy. So we have this phrase that actually translates in English, daddy, the father. This metaphor is about parent-child relationship and closeness. And when, when Jesus invokes this idea of Abba, the way that a child would cry out to a parent, it totally shifts how we begin our prayers to God. Because when does a child cry out, mommy, mama, or daddy? Kids cry out when they're scared, when they're hurt, when they want something. But also when they see their parent walk into the room and they run up to greet, shouting, Abba! And similarly, that that parent-child relationship that's captured in that phrase can inspire us to think about how God might receive our greeting. If we are running up to God saying, Abba, how God might feel about that, hearing our voice crying out God's parental name. We sang Stevie Wonder's Isn't She Lovely, written about his infant daughter, And the phrase, isn't she lovely, made from love, captures that loving parent familiarity. It is God's love that made us into being. And so when we greet God by crying out God's name, not God's formal name, not saying the Father, but by crying out Abba, Mama, Daddy, and doing so in innocence and in love, out of our need, out of our joy, out of our fear, out of our boredom. Think of all the ways that children cry out to parents. That is the way that Jesus teaches us to begin speaking with God. Not as adults who have it all together, but as children longing for a parent who loves them. And once we are known as children of God, In this intimate way, in this personal way, not not in this technical way of like, yes, we are all children of God, but we have this sense now of family, both social structure family to where we say we greet you brothers, sisters, siblings in Christ, and we claim one another as family in a way that binds us to one another, obligates us to one another, says that we must have one another's back, universalizes that tribal familial loyalty. Now we also have this intimacy and this closeness, that loyalty comes not out of obligation, but out of love, 
out of adoration, out of a sense of closeness and kinship, that we are together in this. Now, the scriptures say that we are heirs of God, that in being children of God, we aren't just children, we are inheritors, that whatever God has is ours. And this is, again, a callback to that patrilineal system where children would inherit the Father's riches. But God is saying, you, humanity, are my heirs. I offer to you all that is, because it is mine. And because you are children of mine, it is yours. What does it mean to be an heir of God? It means, it means we got to take up the family business, to liberate, to create, to heal, to delight. And that is why we are co-liberators. That is why we are co-creators. That is why our worship matters. Because as children of God's, we are participating in this work of God's. We are taking up the family business. We have a place in God's project claimed by God. But that's a pretty bold claim to make. So with what boldness do we declare, Abba the Father, I'm part of this family now. Abba the Mother, you are mine and I am yours. That's a really bold and powerful claim to make. And so Paul, in writing that we don't know how to pray, assures us that we can't actually do that on our own. That that's too big of a claim for us to make alone. That the Holy Spirit herself intercedes and gives us that power to pray. That power to call out to God. That power to say, you are my mother. I am your child. And I am part of this because you have claimed me. And so, when you are feeling like you are not a beloved child when you are feeling like you are not an inheritor of all that is, know that the Holy Spirit will intercede for you with sighs too deep for words, according to the scriptures, will claim that for you and with you. And through the power of the Spirit, you can pray, our Abba, the Father, the Mother in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen.